Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and thank you for joining me for episode 4 of The Andy Rowe Show. Have a think about what you were doing when you were 21 years old. Today's guest was embarking on a crowdfunding operation to climb the biggest mountain in the world. And once she climbed it, she wasn't satisfied, so she did it twice. Still not satisfied, she slapped on a pair of skis and headed off to the South Pole by herself. Today's guest should leave you inspired and motivated. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me now is the youngest woman to climb both sides of Mount Everest. She's also the youngest woman to ski solo to the South Pole. Molly Hughes joins me now. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, a pleasure. Great to be here. Let's talk about, um, we'll talk about Everest shortly, but um, first of all, what the hell were you thinking when you decided to ski to the South Pole by yourself? Um, That's a really good question. And one, people ask me quite a lot, especially like my mum and my family, Um, because it, it was that, it was like, going off to Antarctica and spending what turned out to be like 58 and a half days completely on my own, completely in this this crazy wilderness that I'd never been to before, I'd never seen before. Um, so what was I thinking? Good question. <laughs> um, I think I just wanted to experience the continent, I think, because I'd researched it so much and listened to other people that had been down there, and it sounded like amazing. And even though it's horrible and cold and super windy it really kind of intrigued me in a way because it's this like massive frozen continent um and hardly anyone has has been there and hardly Mm. anyone has kind of touched or seen the places that i've been lucky enough to to have seen now um yeah it just really intrigued me you're not really selling it to me it sounds like it sounds horrible (laughs) i know there's i know there's penguins down there i know there's there's whales in the water but on the on the actual like trip there's nothing is there yeah, nothing at all. So I, I started my trip at a place called Hercules Inlet, which is basically where like the sea ice meets the landmass of Antarctica. And right. from that point to the South Pole, it was like 700 miles. Um, and there's just nothing there, no wildlife. Um, not even bacteria can kind of grow in that environment because it is so so cold and so barren. Um, so yeah, just absolutely nothing for, for a couple of months. So when you were dropped off, um, what was that first initial moment like? Because you, you were all alone and... <laughs> And you hadn't been there before. Yeah, it was um, it was cool, actually. So I got dropped off. Basically, in Antarctica, there's a big base camp that's really well looked after. Loads of people there. And about a half-hour flight from there is where my start point was at Hercules Inlet. And I got dropped off by these two pilots. Um, and they were lovely. They helped me get my sled off, off, the, uh, off the plane. They gave me my last hug. And then I remember just like hearing them start the engine behind me. And they, they took off and they did a big kind of circle around the inlet and they dove down really quite close to me and I just waved them off and it was a weird feeling like waving off the last people you're probably going to see for for a couple of months and waving off your kind of get out and your your kind of touch with reality and your touch with humanity um but actually in that moment I I felt amazing I felt kind of elated to finally be there like it taken so much prep so much 
uh, trying to get the funding and the sponsorship, so much training, and so much kind of focus on this one point. And then when I was finally there and that plane was flying off into the distance, yeah, I felt excited and, and really happy to be there. That feeling that you were just talking about, like, you know, being alone as well, that's something you're, you're um, that's quite current at the moment for you, isn't it? Especially, well, for everyone, um, that you're doing a little bit of work around, especially with what's going on with, you know, lockdowns and people having to yeah. spend a lot of time by themselves. Yeah, so I, I basically got back from Antarctica at the end of January this year, 2020, um, and then had two, two and a half months of great fun, lots of partying, lots of drinking, lots of catching up with people, um, lots of talks and media stuff. And then suddenly, end of March, we're back into to lockdown. Um, so that was kind of going from two months of socialized, social isolation back into this kind of form of social isolation, um, which w- was tough. Um, I've been doing a little bit of a few talks and some kind of media stuff recently, kind of with my top tips of, of how to kind of deal with it and, and get through that social isolation, let me say it. Yeah. Um, in a very different setting, but I think some of the things are definitely quite parallel. What are your top tips? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think one of the, the biggest things with the situation, and definitely in full lockdown, was trying not to get overwhelmed by the kind of pressure of the situation because it's super anxiety-inducing, this current situation we're in. We don't have much certainty with what's going to happen next month or, or even next week with, with lockdowns and, and how this is going to affect our society. So try not to get overwhelmed by that and just working out what's in your control. And by doing that, you just kind of take it a day at a time and you just assess the day you've got on hand and you do the best you can do that day. Um, and then you don't focus too far down the line and not try not to think about next year and what I want to do next year and just focusing on, on this month. Um, so yeah, really breaking it all down. And that's totally what I had to do in Antarctica. What about the, the lack of social contact? Yeah, that was um, in terms of lockdown, Hard in a way. Um, I li- luckily, I live with my girlfriend, so that was great to have at least one other person in the house. Um, but in terms of not seeing anyone else, that was hard. And I, I do feel people that have that lack of, of contact or they live alone at this time. Um, but I guess what I've been saying is get in touch with people as much as you can. And we're so lucky these days to be able to do Skype calls, Zoom calls. Um, you can even work doing Teams from home. Mm. Um, and in Antarctica, that, that's what I did. I didn't have the internet, but I had a satellite phone and a satellite device. So I would be texting home every morning when I left my tent, texting home when I put up my tent and I knew I was safe every evening and ringing home probably about once a week or mm. as much as I So going back, to, going back to Antarctica, you've set off. This is the first time you've been to Antarctica. Yeah. You're by yourself, 700 miles to go. Am I right? 700 miles to go? Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing that you you can't just look at your compass and head south. How did you know where you're going? Um, so GPS and, and compass. All oh, right, so Google morning, Maps. <laughs> yeah. Each morning I would get a bearing from my GPS, and that'd be the numbers that I put into my compass. Yeah. And then my compass, I basically had like a chest harness for it, so it would sit out in front of me, so I could still use my ski poles to to pull myself along. So I'd have the number on my compass and just follow the arrow um, all day long. And on days where it was clear, like it was fine navigating because you'd pick a point like in in the distance, you ski to it and then you'd set your compass up and ski to the next point over and over again. Um, But actually on this trip, I didn't have that much clear weather. Um, And especially at the beginning, Mm. I I started off great that first day at Hercules Inlet, but quite quickly a huge weather front kind of came in to where I was. And it was a weather front that lasted for 
uh, nine days. Um, and it was pretty much nine days of hell. Um, crazy strong winds up to about 60 knots. Uh, with that, you get the low temperatures of about minus 45 on a couple of days. Ooh. And in terms of the visibility, it was a complete whiteout. I don't know if you've been in a whiteout before in, in the mountains, but it's yeah, it's like when the snow, when the, the cloud comes into a like here. So you, you can't see anything. You can't see up or down or left or right. So how far in front of your face can you see? Probably just the end of my ski tips. Right. So about so, yeah, a meter. About a meter, yeah. And then, and then and then all you can see is white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really kind of disorientating because you feel quite dizzy with it because it's hard to tell almost if you're going uphill or downhill and you can't see anything around you. So I was just staring at that compass the whole time. Trying to keep the arrow of my compass in its little box and just follow it along. Oh my goodness! I, I bet the relief when the clouds finally cleared was immense. Yeah, I cried a lot. Did you? <laughs> yeah. What did you have? Some words where you just like hallelujah. What were you? Um, I actually filmed a little video. I'll send it to you. Okay. It's, um, it's just me crying, but. <laughs> <laughs> Love a crying video. <laughs> How um. This, this is kind of a weird question, but obviously it's so cold there and you've still got to go to the bathroom and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. How, how does that How does that work? I hope this isn't too personal or too graphic, yeah, but how does that work? Because, yeah, I'm assuming it, things freeze before they hit the ground. Uh, no, it's not, it's not that cold. Like, that's got to be properly cold for that to happen. Um, and I always get this question, uh, especially when I'm in schools and, like, primary schools doing talks. So I'm oh, glad, glad you asked it. Right, yeah, well, making me feel good about my question there. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not that cold. Like the ambient temperature was between minus 10 and minus 25. I don't right. think it got much colder than minus 25. Okay. But with the wind chill, that's where the real cold temperatures come of like minus 45. Um, so, yeah, things don't just freeze straight away. It's yeah. um, like your body's so warm. So basically, you, yeah. you just go as quickly as you can and try not to expose too much skin. Um, or in, in like the vestibules of your tent as well is, is a good place to go to the toilet because right. you've got a bit of protection. Right. Or you hide behind your sled from the wind. Um, yeah, it's not fun, but you, you just do it quickly. You're basically working out for 58 days straight. How do you stay clean? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I didn't shower for 62 or 63 days. Oh, Molly. Um, <laughs> But I never, I mean, yeah, I was pretty gross. I was pretty gross. This is, again, this, while, we're on this, while we're on this topic, um, what was that first shower like? Because, uh, you know, when I get in from a cold day, <laughs> work or whatever, like that, yeah. that shower's, I bet, that was I bet you took a bath, didn't you? Uh, so, yeah, the, the first shower was really good. It was back at the base camp on, on the coast. Um, but it was one of those showers on like a type of campsite that lasts for like three minutes. Um, so it was nice, but I didn't get a proper one until I got back to Chile and back to an actual hotel. And I think I had like three showers in a row and, and a bath as well. Uh, it was good. Nice, nice. And um, when you were when you were uh, approaching the South Pole, how do you know you're there? Is there actually a pole? Like, what's the? Yeah. So, like, the actual South Pole is uh, like a huge American science base. So there's tons of stuff going on there, which is is kind of weird because there's nothing really around you in Antarctica. And then I probably saw this place about, I think I was about 18 nautical miles away when I finally saw it because it was a little bit higher than me. Did you know um, that was going to be there or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't look at pictures and stuff. Nice. Oh, you've done your um, research. <laughs> yeah, I did do that research. 
Um, so yeah, I saw it from miles away and it was amazing to, to see it. And that gave me so much like momentum to keep going. Um, but actually kind of interestingly that night, well that day, as soon as I saw it, I pushed on really, really fast and I was skiing amazingly like strangely to ACDC on, on my iPod. Um, <laughs> but I got oh, to about, like, <laughs> I got to about like five miles away and it was starting to get late into the evening. And I actually just thought, you know, I'm going to just stop for the night and I'm going to spend one more night out here. And like five miles out there would probably take me a couple of hours or less. Um, but I think I felt a little bit of trepidation or maybe a little bit of fear of getting to the South Pole and there being loads of people there. And, and you, you're I'm stinking at this point as well. I'm, I'm disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was a weird thing actually, because I've been so focused on getting there and the food that was going to be there and seeing people and getting a hug. But then when it was actually coming, I was uh, pretty scared to to get back into that. What were you scared um, so about? I think I'd just been on my own for 58 days. and You'd forgotten how to talk to people. Yeah. And I had nothing. I had no internet access. I looked at social media. I didn't really know what was going on in the rest of the world. Um, and I guess like yeah. it's that it's that one moment that you've been thinking about for 58 days and it's yeah. just about to be there and you probably visualize it so many times yeah, yeah. and you're just like, it's so close, but, oh, I'm not ready for this yet. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I what think was so. it? What was it? What was it actually like when you got there? Amazing. So like the next morning I woke up super early and I was just excited to, to get in. So I left my, I like put my tent down about 5am and got into the pole like half seven, just before eight. Um, and ski down to the actual pole because there is a, an actual pole at the geographic south pole. It's about this high, and it looks like one of those barber poles, like red and, and white. Um, and then just off to the side, there's a sign which is the actual point of the geographic south pole. Um, and it was pretty emotional getting there. I got to the pole and I, I rang my girlfriend on the sat phone. I rang my mum and my sister. Um, it was freezing, so I just spoke to them for like a minute outside. So I'd, I'd been texting them that morning to let them know I was, was going to be doing it. Um, I think I just said, I'm here, I've done it. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Yeah. <laughs> wow. uh, but then I skied to the like tent where there was some people waiting for me and I had a, a fry up and a breakfast and spent a couple of nights staying at that camp. So you didn't have to ski back, did you? No, Obviously. luckily not. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's uphill to the north, to the, uphill to the South Pole, right? Yeah. And, then, yeah. and then downhill if you're going, if you're going back out. Yeah, like the South Pole sits about 2,800 metres above sea level. Right. And I started really close to sea level. So, yeah, it was uphill the whole way. Um, so going the other way is a little bit easier. During the whiteout, and you can only see your hand in front of your face and your compass, yeah. how did you keep yourself mentally motivated during that time? Yeah. So I think during that kind of eight-day whiteout that I had right at the beginning, it was all, everything was very... Uh, now everything happened in the moment and I tried not to plan too far ahead so I was just planning the next like hour of skiing and then I knew after an hour I'll be stopping and eating and, and drinking and, and checking my compass um but I guess the kind of real down downer that kind of came was af actually after the whiteout so I spent eight days in this horrible whiteout horrible weather the weather started to improve I had that big cry when, when the sun finally came out um, but it was kind of the, the following few days after that where I started to feel really down and almost like this huge black cloud had just kind of come and, and covered my head. And I've never, ever felt like this before. And especially on expeditions, I've never felt like this. 
And I think probably because I always had guides and teammates and people to pick me up and give me a hug and, you know, make plans with. Um, but in Antarctica, I couldn't shift this kind of negativity. And it was all of these thoughts of like, um, you know, what on earth am I doing down here? Like, why did I think I could come and achieve this? I thought, is my ego really that big that I thought I could come and, and handle Antarctica completely by myself? Um, I was really behind schedule after being stuck in that storm for a couple of weeks. Um, and all of these worries were just going around my head. Um, and one day I just decided that I had to like banish these, these dark thoughts because I was never going to make it to the end or I wasn't even going to make it another week if I, I kept on this kind of mental track that I was on. Um, so I kind of racked my brain of, of things I could do to improve my mindset. And I remembered a TED talk that I watched a few years ago, actually from a, a friend of mine delivered it, a guy called Bassett. And it was all about uh, the use of positive affirmations. And I watched the talk and I'd actually done some prep with him for the talk. And I love the talk. And I loved his story. But I always thought to myself, you know, this isn't for me. I could never stand there and, and give myself positive affirmations or, or say really positive things about me in the mirror. Um, that wasn't something I could do but in Antarctica I was desperate and I was close to you know having to, to throw the towel in um, so I thought okay I'll give this a go I'll come up with three positive like mantras to say about myself to see if it works um, so I came up with these three and the first one was to say I am strong which was really useful when I was pulling this huge sled that weighed like 105 kilograms and then struggling uphill so I would just say I am strong the second one was to say, I am inspiring people. And that one felt really important because it was all far too hard just for it to be about me and my own achievement. I had to know it was having some kind of effect on other people. Um, and the third one was quite rude. So I apologize if there's any kids listening. <laughs> but I would just say, I am a fucking badass as loud as I could. And I would literally shout these three mantras out to Antarctica. Um, and I was so shocked by how well they actually worked. Like, Initially, after I said them and I shouted them, um, I started laughing. And I think that was kind of like the first positive emotion I'd elicited for like two weeks. Um, and then I just kind of felt this kind of warmth and, and power kind of come over me. And it would last for a few hours and then that black cloud would try and come back. But I would just shout it away with these mantras. And after, I don't know, two or three days of doing this, uh, it was amazing how much my mindset started to shift. And I started to feel strong. And I started to remember why I was there to, to inspire other people. And I guess I started to feel like a, a bit of a badass as well. Um, <laughs> and I think that really got me through that, that, that period. Can we, can we break down each mantra? Is there much in behind each one? Um, not really. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess the, the strength one was important because I was feeling like so weak, like unbelievably weak, unbelievably tired. And and like small and it was weird like in such a huge environment and I'm like five foot four and I was pulling this sled that weighed 105 kilograms so which is actually the weight of like an international rugby player um so I was pulling like one of your mates behind me for, <laughs> for wow. two months um and I guess I felt so weak and I didn't feel strong so saying that over and over again made me feel so much stronger than than I actually was I think and then you're inspiring people obviously but what was your thinking behind that that one felt really important um and I think like I think all these trips that I do I then they are about me and they are about my own development and my own experiences but that's not enough to get you through anything I think you have to have like a huge ego for that to 
to make you go to these kind of <laughs> these ends of the world. Um, so I had to know it was having an impact on people back home. And I did know that there were like lots of schools following my trip and loads of people on social media. And, you know, before the trip, I'd had so many like good luck messages and, and people really behind it. And I couldn't like check the social media stuff when I was away, but I, I kind of knew it was there. Um, and that felt, yeah, really, really important to to me actually do this. Like I wasn't going to let myself down if I stopped. I was going to let all of these like hundreds of people at home down if, if I stopped. And then you're a fucking badass. <laughs> um I think that one was important as well because that's that's me kind of like lying to myself. And in a way, I think these mantras are what you want to be. They're not what you feel right now. And I've never, ever felt like a fucking badass, even when I'm, you know, scaling Everest or whatever. I've never felt that. But I kind of know that maybe some people that are watching my trip might feel that. So I was like, I need to kind of try and embody this as much as I can. Um, and yeah, it, it felt good to, to shout that across Antarctica. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Moving on to Everest, things don't get any easier. We're just going to go back. Um, am I right in saying that part of the reason you were climbing Everest was to overcome shyness and anxiety? Um, not as a target, but it was definitely a product of it. Because I did Everest the first time on the south side when I was still really young. I was, I was 21. Um, and before that, I'd been at you know, a school and at university and I was always super shy, you know, especially at school. Like I wasn't one of those kids who would put their hand up and, and answer questions in class. And I did always feel a little bit of social anxiety going into uni and, and dealing with all of those kind of situations you get at uni and even like having to present in front of a small group. Um, mm. I found that really tough. So I think, I, don't know, I think it was a case of me feeling inside that I had a, a lot of potential and that I could achieve a lot, um, but never having that kind of confidence to, to shout about it. In your head, you hadn't achieved anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, you hadn't in comparison to what you have done now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just, yeah, a normal kid. You don't have to answer this, and, and um, but was, was any of that to do with your sexuality or anything like that? Was that was that part of it? or? I don't think so. Like, looking back, maybe that kept me and myself a little bit more. Um, but I never, I didn't really come out properly until I was 22. So after I'd finally climbed the south side of Everest, I think, but I think doing Everest gave me a huge confidence boost and I realized kind of who I am and that I can achieve big things and to be proud of myself. Yeah. So maybe that actually gave me the confidence to come out in the end, I guess. Because there are so many people out there that battle with coming out and yeah. battle with that side of 
understanding who they are and it's extremely inspiring to anyone you know people yeah. people talk about you being the youngest female to do this and do that like especially to people that have come from your situation as well so i'm guessing people have reached out to you yeah to a to a small extent i guess i don't know in terms of my sexuality it's not something i've spoken about that much until more recently and i think i haven't ever been closed about it but i've never made a point of, of shouting about it um but now i guess in the last year or so i've realized what a positive impact it can have on other people and i need to start using this so kind of every time i go into a school and do a presentation i always make sure i mention i don't shout about it but i just be like oh and my girlfriend was at home and i ran her on christmas day i always just throw it into conversation just to kind of try and normalize it as, as much as i can it's it's so important that you're you're doing that isn't it and to and do you sort of have a have like a message for people that you know may be listening to this that may be struggling or um maybe battling with their identity it's hard isn't it i think the main message is just to know that you're worthy and for me i had to go off and climb the highest mountain in the world i guess to get that confidence and to, to feel that that proper self-worth um and you definitely don't have to do that but if you can initially know that you are worthy it is hard though um mm. And in terms of coming out, I think for anyone I've spoken to that have, it's always easier than you think it's going to be. And the benefits of it completely outweigh all of the stress that you're going through before that. Um, so I think it's, it's always about just going for it. And the people that don't stand by you or the people that don't support you, they're not worth having in your life. And they're not worthy of your time and your attention. So I would say, yeah, move away from, from negativity and move into a new kind of positive life, I guess. Let's look at Everest. So to get to the top of Everest, it's obviously not just about rocking up, ready to go and having a crack. It's it's quite a process, isn't it? E including even the, the, the trip to base camp. Yeah, for sure. So with Everest, you can either climb it on the south side from Nepal or the north side from Tibet. Um, and the first time in 2012, I climbed it from the south side. That's the popular one, isn't it? That's the one That's for most people. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know if it's easier, I guess. Technically, it's a little bit easier. It's not as cold. It's not as windy as the north side. Um, but there are problems with the popularity of it. There's lots of people there to get in your way um, and cause potential problems. Um, but yeah, getting to the start point of an Everest expedition is not easy. You need to find thousands and thousands of pounds. I think the, the first time I climbed it, I needed like 40 45,000 pounds yeah just on that because obviously obviously you're a very inspiring person and you've done all these amazing things yeah. and it's going to be very easy for people to say well she's mummy and daddy have helped her out <laughs> or, or I don't know like that how do you get the money for this because they're expensive projects yeah totally so I was 21 years old um never had any money my parents don't have any money um my mum's a gardener my dad's like a kayaking instructor um, and I was a uni and I'd, I'd come up with this plan to go to Everest, but I knew I needed to raise this kind of thousands and thousands of pounds. Um, so I was kind of looking at what other people had done before me. And it's basically trying to get corporate sponsorship to do something like this. So you come up with a big document, like a, a marketing document of everything I thought I could like offer a company. Um, but at the time I was 21 doing a psychology degree. I knew nothing about business or, or marketing. So it was basically like a 30-page document of, of rubbish chat that I would send out to 30 or 40 different companies each week. And it was 10, 11 months of constant rejections, constantly people coming back and being like, 
nice idea, but no, um, over and over and over again. Or a lot of the time you just wouldn't hear back from people. Um, but then finally, about a month before, all of the money kind of finally came through, which which was amazing. Um, but it took a lot of perseverance because with, with that, when you don't have the money, but you've got a date you want to leave, you've got to do all of the training, all of the prep, all of the kind of logistics. So you've got to have all that right. in the bag without knowing where you're going. Ah, so the process is you you do the training, you book a day, yeah. you book a trip, yeah. and and then and then you go and say to the sponsors, "I'm doing this. Yeah. Do you want to jump on board?" Yeah. So you could get to D Day where you're supposed to be heading to Everest and not have the money and have to pull out. Yeah, yeah, and that happened every single time on any trip I've done. Um, it, it worked in 2012. The, the final money came through like four weeks before which was amazing. Um, on the north side, I actually tried to do it in 2016, not 2017. And I got to like the beginning of April when I was meant to be flying and didn't have any money. Um, so I had to call off that year, but luckily managed to get it together for the, for the following year. Um, yeah, so like super stressful. <laughs> yeah. way to do anything, but. <laughs> yeah. And then the trick to base camp. So you've got the, got the cash, yeah. you're away. Cash, flown into Nepal. Um, and then the, the hike to base camp is, is amazing. And I don't know if any of your listeners have done it. If not, they definitely should because um, it's one of the most beautiful tracks in the world. You basically fly to a little airport called Lukla and it's one of the highest airports in the world. I think it's the most dangerous airport in the world. It's had like the most crashes and fatalities and stuff. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't like flying either. So that, I'm, that there. Was- I'm there, I'm there, I'm going. <laughs> but after that bit is great because you're in the Kumbu Valley and this huge valley leads you all the way up to, to the base of Everest. And it's uh, like the home of the Sherpas. That's where the Sherpa people come from, which are an amazing group of Nepalese people who originally came from the east, from Tibet, like, I don't know how long ago, a thousand years ago? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, don't know the figures. Um, but these amazing, beautiful, humble people. Um, and you walk through their villages and visit their monasteries and, and stay in their tea houses and, and see the kids when they're coming out of school. Um, yeah, a really lovely experience. Um, for the people but then also you're surrounded by the highest mountains in the world and it's it's stunning to trek to base camp so it's like nine ten days isn't it and you're going to say anyone can climb everest so we're just going to park that but, <laughs> but 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 anyone literally like can walk to base camp right is yeah that, is it a hard trek like what would it be like on a scale of like do you need to be fit enough to run a half marathon a marathon an ironman like what what sort of fitness level do you need to be to get to base camp right yeah, half marathon or less, maybe. Right. I don't know, it's hard. I think if I'm doing all these things, my scales are like a little bit off these days. Right. But it it's amazing. And I think the hard thing is the altitude because you get to base camp and that's like five and a half thousand meters. So you're pretty high. There's not much oxygen. Um, so you need to be physically fit enough to be able to cope in that kind of environment. To get to um, base camp, are you, are you climbing with picks and stuff? No, no it's, it's just, just walk. Just hiking. It's yeah, hiking, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's all paths and you get guides who are great and stay like indoors and tea houses every night. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Like it's tough. It's definitely a challenge and, and a huge achievement to get there, but totally worth it and, and doable for a lot of people. Yeah. And then and then when you actually uh, get to base camp and you've got the summit, I'm guessing maybe in view, um, or it's, you know where it is. Yeah. Um, it's not just a matter of picking a day and humping it up the hill, is it? Yeah, it's, it's a huge process. It's from that point, it's probably I don't know, six or seven weeks. Um, and you spend the first 
four or five weeks kind of like yo-yoing up and down the mountain. So you go from base camp up to camp one, come back down to base camp, rest for a few days. You'll then maybe go up to camp two, back down, rest for a bit, up to camp three, which is like 7,100 meters. How long are you staying at these camps? A, a night, two nights. Right. So it's a whole day climbing up. Yeah, a day or two, like two days to get to camp three. Um, yeah, so you're basically just yo-yo up and down for, for weeks to acclimatize your body because there's such little oxygen up there. You want to slowly let your body kind of adjust to that lack of oxygen. Um, but there's no way anyone can go straight from the bottom all the way to the top and down again because you get super sick and your head would probably explode. Um, so we take our time over these four or five weeks as we're kind of slowly going up and down it. I'm guessing, like, because on average, there's, I think there's, is it six deaths every year on Everest? So, um, or maybe more. Maybe more. Like, in 2012, there were 12. Wow. 2017, when I was there, I can't remember, maybe 10 or 11, I think. Right. So, so you knew this. You're quite aware of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> quite aware of this, <laughs> these, these, the stats and the numbers, obviously. Because I'm guessing you saw this up close and personal at some point. How do, you, how, do you, how do you deal with that? And can you tell me about that? Yeah. So I guess the hardest thing that probably ever happened to me was about four or five months before I went to Everest on the south side. And I was climbing on this other mountain in the pool called Amadablam. Um, I was still 21. Um, beautiful mountain. My first proper big Himalayan peak. And it was going to be great training for, for going off to Everest. And it was a really small team of us. Uh, but unfortunately, one of the guys in the team took a massive fall and, and died on the trip. Um, so we kind of stopped the expedition there, managed to retrieve his body and then, and then went home. Um, and it was like unbelievably harrowing. The first That's time it happened. Ever, yeah. Yeah. He was right, right next to me. Um, what? so the first time I've ever experienced death, um, the first time I've seen anything like that. And then coming home, we're going to his funeral and meeting his family, um, was really, really tough. And especially like I was so young and I was basically on, on my own. I'd set this journey to go off by myself. Um, Can you tell me what happened? Or it's, it's even hard to know now, but I think he just messed up an abseil and he was coming down this, this bit of the mountain and I think he didn't do something right with his, his abseiling device. I wasn't properly looking at him because I was kind of heading up the mountain and yeah, and he just messed up and went backwards and, and, and fell about 200 metres or so. So that was, that was really tough. And then I got home and this was kind of December and I was hoping to go to Everest in the April. So it was really like a time of working out what on earth is going on. And I'd seen that kind of thin line that you do walk on in the mountains. And I'd seen it so up close and so personal because I'd only known this guy for a few weeks, but like I really liked him and we got on super well. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really hard to, to work out if this is something I still want to do or if it's something that's still worth it. Like, is it worth it for me? And is it worth it for putting my family through this kind of stress? How did you process that to a point where you decided that you still wanted to carry on and climb Everest? Yeah, it's, it's tough. And I, I still don't know if I have properly processed it. Like, what is this? Nearly 10 years later, I guess. But I did a lot of writing at the time. And I wasn't, I was still super shy and whatever. So I wasn't that good at uh, talking to people about this kind of thing or talking to people about my, my emotions. So I did a lot of writing and I carried on the diary that I've been keeping and I wrote every single detail of, of what happened over those few days and, and how it made me feel. And that really helped just to get it out of me. Um, and then I think it was a process of, of taking stock of everything and working out if Everest was still something I wanted to do. 
and and I knew it was and I think one of the reasons that made me pursue it was that this guy who I was with that that unfortunately died one of his ambitions was to go and climb Everest and it was the first time he'd seen it as well and he was so excited to maybe one day go and climb it and so was I and it's kind of all we talked about for the two or three weeks we spent together um and I guess I just felt like I had to go and do this not just for me but for him as well like he couldn't achieve his ambition anymore so I kind of had to kind of almost do it for both of us um in a, in a weird way and yeah I, he wouldn't have wanted me not to do it <laughs> yeah no that makes sense and then so you finally you you go back on to Everest and you've 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 yo-yoed up and down you've done yeah. the four to six weeks how many weeks was it in the end I, don't know, I, sort of blur. I think it was maybe five weeks. Right. Going up and- yeah, details. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes to summit day. Let's let's get inside Molly's head and and yeah. and and let's see what you're seeing on summit day. You've unzipped your tent. You've stepped outside. What's go- what's going on? On summit day, we've got ourselves all the way up to camp number four, which is on the south col of Everest. It's at seven thousand nine hundred and fifty meters. So you're like just beneath what's called the death zone because the death zone is that area above 8,000 meters where like your body's basically dying when it when it's up there. So you're you're camped just below this point. So you've only got a certain amount of time in the death zone before you actually die. Yeah, like you've got bottled oxygen, um, which which really helps. It's it's not like the kind of oxygen you get in hospital. In hospital, it's like a mix of oxygen and like ambient air, but that really helps give you a boost. Um, but when that runs out, and if you spend too much time up there. Yeah, you'd, you'd die, <laughs> definitely. So yeah, sat, sat just below the death zone. And it feels like such a long time ago now, the, the 2012 one. But it was, we got to the camp at about 4 p.m. And it was busy. Like, I'm sure you've seen in, in the news recently, the south side of Everest being busy and, and covered in climbers. And this wasn't really a thing before 2012. And 2012 was the first year where you got the queuing and, and loads of people on there. So we got to the South Cole, the final camp, at 4 p.m. and it was busy. We could feel the amount of people that were there. And it was busy mainly because it was a really small weather window. So we just had about 24, 36 hours of, of calm enough weather to get to the summit. Um, and that meant everyone was heading up there the, the same day. Um, and we felt how busy it was. So we said, okay, we're gonna set off much earlier than we planned. We had planned to leave this camp at about 10 or 11 that night, but we actually decided to go for 8 p.m. So we had just like four precious hours in our little tent at the South Coal, eating, drinking, um, preparing ourselves mentally for this trip. And then suddenly it was 8 p.m. It was pitch black. And I remember my, my Sherpa guide, Lakpanju, he, he came to my tent and he was like, Molly, it's, it's time to go. And I was pretty terrified. We had a small team that there were six Sherpa guides and six uh, clients, you'd call us. Um, they started off in a group. But you kind of split off so you're just with your your one shepherd guide. And mine was this amazing guy called Lakpa Anju. And I'd climbed with him on Amadabland when we had that awful accident. So I knew him pretty well. Um, so I was so excited that he was going to be the, the guy with me. Um, and we started off on the kind of initial slopes. And we did well at first. We, we were reasonably quick getting out up at the camp, pitch black, just following our head torches. Um, and we went up, climbed hour after hour after hour. And it got harder and harder and harder. The higher we climbed, the less oxygen that there was there. And it really felt like it was my mind that had to keep my body going. And my body felt like it was almost, you know, on its last legs. And, you know, it knew it shouldn't be here. It knew it shouldn't be in the death zone. 
Um, but I really had to keep my mind that like tiny bit stronger than my body to keep urging it to take that next step and that next step and that next step. And on an Everest summit night, you, you basically move incredibly slowly. You, you're like taking one step, stopping, catching your breath, one step, stopping, catching your breath for hours and hours and hours. And I guess the kind of amazing part that night was it was really pitch black in front of me because the slope was going up like that. And I remember just stopping and turning around behind me and just seeing the sky just being completely orange. And there's this kind of line that went across it. And that was the, the sunrise. So it was probably about 3.30, 4am when the sunrise started to happen. And the amount of motivation that gave me was incredible. Like the whole night you're so like encompassed in the darkness. But as soon as there's a bit of light and you can see the Himalayas sprawled up beneath you. Um, and basically it was like Tibet sprawled out my right hand side. Nepal sprawled out my left hand side. Just mountains like as far as your eyes can see. And that sunrise, that light just gave me that push to get up onto the, the south summit. And then you come down onto a tiny ridge line and then you see the Hillary step in front of you, which is like the crux of the summit day, the crux of, of the south side route, this rocky section that you've got to climb up. Um, so it took us a little while to get up over there. But over the Hillary step, you know you're, you've basically made it. It's just a big snowy ridge all the way to the top. Um, yeah, and then we, we saw the top from... Don't know, 20 30 meters away so so you you see the top for the first time what, what are you thinking it's a bit the Everest is not <laughs> like I want to say it was incredible and I want to say it felt like there was a fanfare and fireworks but it wasn't it was literally you get to the top and all I felt was this kind of like overwhelming relief and it wasn't like achievement it was just relief basically that I didn't have to climb uphill anymore and I knew the rest of it was going to be going to be downhill and it was a relief that we'd finally made it and I didn't have to like deal with the disappointment of, of not summiting um and I think I didn't feel any of these kind of like emotions of achievement because I knew that we were totally only halfway and we might be standing on top of the world and I might be feel so good like lucky to be here but we still got to get down this mountain and statistically, if you're going to die on Everest, you're going to do it on the way down, not, not the way up. Was there not a moment? Was there not a moment where you were like, I'm about to, like, I'm about to, one small step for man. I know that's not what he said. <laughs> we knocked the bastard off. But was there not a moment where you were like, bam, put my foot on top of the world? <laughs> so not, no, not really. Like oh. I got there and I just sat down and I was like drinking my water. Um, but then just before we left, I was getting Lapa to take a couple of pictures of me and I stood up and I put my arms really wide and uh, that was when a, a bit of like, you know, I'm here, I've done it, came over me. Nice. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry it's not that good a story because I <laughs> want to say, oh, I want to say something. No, I think, it's, I think it's like a familiar story because you're so, you, from what I've heard is you're, you're so spaced out, aren't you? Because you just, yeah. you're completely gassed, your body's gassed, you're, yeah. you're dying when you haven't got your mask on. <laughs> Exactly. It's, 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 it's so it's, like hypoxic. It feels a bit like you're drunk in a way, being that kind of hypoxic. And you're just so like anxious that you've got to now get down this mountain that you just spent 12 hours getting to the top of. Yeah. So you were saying before the descent, you know, everyone, everyone prefers to run downhill than uphill, but it's not the case on Everest, is it? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think statistically, if you're going to die, you do it on the way down, not the way up. Um, mainly because you've been climbing in the death zone for such a long time. I've been there for 12 hours. It would be so easy to like make a mistake 
to not clip into one of the ropes properly, to trip on your your crampons on the ropes, um, to run out of oxygen. A lot of people run out of oxygen on the way down. Um, and I just knew that I had to get down as, as safely as I possibly could. Like I promised everyone back home that I, I was going to. But it was, yeah, it was still a, a tough descent. You uh, had a close call though, didn't you? Yeah. So we we basically got back to almost the bottom of the Hillary step. And that's when we first felt how busy it was up there. Because we, we'd left camp so early and we got up ahead of most of the crowd. But when we got back to the Hillary step, I just saw backed up along the ridge all of these climbers. Um, they were all, I don't know. Like hundreds what? or? No, like 50, 60. Right. Most of them were dressed in red as well, weirdly. And I remember just seeing all of these red people along this ridge line. But the thing with like that many people is unbelievably dangerous because only one person can really move at once. And they're backed up along this really tight ridge line. But also they're backed up on the kind of crux of the Hillary step, the bit that I had to climb down. So where we were, we, we stood, we kind of wedged ourselves in this little corner and people coming up around the Hillary step, climbing over it. And each person takes three, four, five minutes to actually climb this section because it's so hard and everything's so slow. Um, so we're waiting there for 40, 50 minutes as these people came up and they'd, they'd get to us and they'd basically have to unclip from the rope that we were on and we'd hold onto their arm. They clip on the other side and carry on off towards towards the summit. Um, and that went on and on, 40, 50 minutes, almost an hour. And after about an hour, I started to feel pretty ill. Like <clears throat> I was really aware that I'd hardly drunk anything and hardly eaten anything for about 14 hours now. I've been aware that I've been in the death zone for like 14 hours. Um, but then I started to feel like really, really ill. And I remember just like tapping Lapra on the shoulder and being like, Lapra, I, I don't feel good. And at first he, he didn't get it. It's so hard to communicate under all these masks and stuff. Um, but then I'm like, no, like, I, I think my oxygen's run out. And he quickly checks the gauge, which is like here in my backpack. And I see this like panic flick across his face. And I think, oh shit, my oxygen really has run out. And I not really had any idea how long I'd been stood there not breathing any oxygen. Because you don't really notice it when you're, when you're stood still. It's when you start moving that you need to start breathing this oxygen. Um, so I had no idea really how long it had run out. And I knew our spare oxygen canister was in Lapra's backpack. But to get it out, we'd had to be somewhere off the Hillary step, somewhere off this ridgeline, somewhere where, where we had a bit of space. Um, and yeah, as soon as it happened, Lapra just like completely changed. And he's such a nice guy and he wants to look after everyone around him. Um, but as soon as it happened, I knew that I was just his like number one priority. And he shouted down to all these people coming up that we were coming down and just like changed complete gear. And we basically managed to push our way down the Hillary step, push our way along the ridge past all of these people. Um, I think I actually slid down the Hillary step on my bum, um, like no finesse, we're climbing down it. Um, and then we finally got to this section of the ridge where it was a little bit wider. And he like sat me in this little corner and pulled out his fresh oxygen canister from his backpack and attached it to my mask. And within a couple of minutes of breathing this kind of fresh oxygen, I started to feel much better um, and I started to feel kind of okay again. And we just kind of stopped and regained ourselves and had to eat and drink and um, carried on and just kept going down the mountain all the way back to the South Cole at 7,900 meters. Um, I think it was probably about 21 hours or so of being out and up above the death zone. Um, a, lot, a long time. Um, but that night on Everest, four people died. Um, 
and I think mainly due to this kind of level of overcrowding and complications that happen when there are so many people there. Um, but if it wasn't for LACPA, then yeah, I was pretty helpless. I think it would have, would have probably been five. Do you think that, because there's a lot of chat about Everest and the too many people climbing the mountain, isn't there? What, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Like I've always originally said, you know, it's such an incredible experience and it's, it's changed my life climbing it. And it's so beautiful and such an amazing mountain that I want everyone to be able to see it with their own eyes and experience it because um, I got so much out of it. But these kind of levels of overcrowding that have gone on and on and on, especially on the south side, are really unsafe, like unbelievably unsafe. And limits definitely need to be put on. Um, I think the tough thing is it's such a good moneymaker for the Nepalese government. They get 10 or 11 grand per person that does it. Um, which basically doesn't really go back into the mountain. It goes into someone's pocket. Um, really? So, yeah. And that's, I don't know the figures, but it's maybe two or 300 climbers a year. So it's a lot of money. Um, but that needs to be stopped and then you put limits on it. Like let 100 climbers a year go and climb it and it would be a much nicer place. You'd get much less negative uh, media. You wouldn't get all these awful articles, um, which in the end reflect badly on the pool anyway. And then like... It... If you're looking at um, the achievement behind, you know, climbing Everest for the first time, you've climbed the south. Why are you going back to climb the north? <laughs> so I went back to the north side, I think, three years later. And I think in a way it kind of felt like I had a bit of like unfinished business, and mainly because I like suffered so much on the south side and I didn't enjoy getting to the top. I got to the summit, like I said, there was no sense of achievement. The descent was so horrific. Like, I was always really close to my edge, I guess, mm. on the top of Everest. I was never felt in that much control, especially on the summit night. Maybe I didn't feel completely like I should be there. I mean, I was young. I was 21 years old. Um, I probably shouldn't have been really thinking back. Um, but I never felt like I kind of owed my trip or did it in that good a style. And also, the more I kind of worked out about this mountain, the, the north side of it just held a big kind of allure over me. It's colder, it's windier. It's the first side of the mountain that people were trying to climb in the 1920s and all of these British British teams and stories of Mallory and Irvine maybe getting to the top, maybe not. And it really intrigued me. And I thought, okay, I've done the south side. I managed to get to the top. I'm now older. I'm now a much better mountaineer. Uh, let's go and try, try the north side. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm so glad I did. We had a really small team. It was me and Lapper again. Um, a friend of mine called John Gupta, who's a mountain guide, and he came along as my guide. So it was three of us and another Sherpa guide called Leela. So just like four of us in, in a team. And we had, yeah, an amazing couple of months on, on the north side. Was it, uh, obviously, yeah, it's got a reputation of being harder. Were there more dead bodies on the north side? Yeah, yeah. I didn't see any dead bodies on the south side. Um, on the north side, I saw five, I think. Wow. Um, and I don't, I don't think more people would die on it. <laughs> I think it sounds really morbid, but I think the bodies just don't get brought down as much as they do on the south side. Um, I think maybe the death rate might be higher on the south side, but yeah, a lot. It's, it's hard to bring a body off a mountain, mm. especially on the north side, getting it down like the second step and the first step. These really big, tricky, rocky sections, really hard, and it puts people in danger to bring them down. Um, yeah, so I always thought like if I died, especially above like the second step, I'd want to just be like shoved off the edge or something i wouldn't want to <laughs> my team to have to worry about getting me down again and putting themselves at risk 
Yeah. How, how do you um how do you deal with that when you when you're seeing that and can you sort of talk me through a situation where you've had to had to deal with that? Yeah, so I guess on the summit night on the north side, um, this was 2017. Um, we'd spent six weeks again, kind of acclimatizing, getting up and down it, um, and everything was going really well. I had this, this amazing team, and we were having a lot of fun along along the way. And I felt so much more in control on the north side. Um, but the summit night's big, and you start higher on the mountain, so you start at 8,300 meters. That's the last camp. So you're already like in the death zone. Your body's already starting to deteriorate. And then you're up on the northeast ridge, which is this massive ridge line that's reasonably technical in places, big rock steps to get over, really narrow ridge lines and a lot of it. Um, so, yeah, pretty terrifying. And on the way up, I only saw one body. And on the way down, I think I saw four more because it was light and I could, could actually see them. Um, but the one I saw on the way up was the, the most horrific for sure. It was uh, just before sunrise. And I remember kind of climbing up the section and looking around me and then looking down on my left-hand side and seeing a guy like just there, like a meter off the rope that I was on. And he was like facing down the slope. Um, and I guess the thing that was sticking in my mind forever is that he'd like lost his gloves. So his hands were just like laid on the snow and they were like so white and so transparent. They just looked like the snow. And I don't know how long he'd been there. I don't think he died that year because I hadn't, hadn't heard that he had. I think maybe he'd been there the year before or the year before that. Um, but just the kind of proximity to him was was unnerving. Um, but also, I must have looked at him for a split second and seen it, taken it all in, but gotten away from it as quickly as I possibly could. And I guess kind of up there, you're so numb to all emotion. Or like you have to be so numb to all emotion. You don't want to start thinking about who he was you don't want to start thinking about his family you don't want to start thinking about the last person those hands touched like you don't want any of that to come in your head because it will just completely throw you off and not only jeopardize you get to the top but totally jeopardize your your safety like seeing that on the street here in edinburgh i would be freaked out for for weeks and weeks on end but up there you have to just be so blinkered to to anything that's gonna like elicit any kind of emotion really mm. So, yeah, I just got away from him as quickly as we could. Um, tried to block it out of my mind. Wow. And was it different summiting for the second time and from the from the north side? And, and is it the same summit? Yeah, 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 exactly the same summit. So you came to the same point, um, which was really cool. And when we finally got there, you could see footprints on the other side. So people that had come up the other side, which was, was nice in a way. Yeah, the second summit was definitely better. I think I kind of knew that I wanted to enjoy it a little bit and I knew I had to enjoy it a little bit. Um, it was like equally as hard, equally as horrific climbing to the top. Um, but getting there, I felt so much more of like that sense of pride. And I was just having so much fun with this team and we'd had such like a successful and straightforward two months on the mountain. Um, yeah, we got to the top. We probably spent about 20 minutes up there. Whereas on the south side, I was only up there for about 10 minutes or so. Um, took lots of pictures, lots of videos, nice. watched the sun come up, um, yeah, and then got down. Nice. And then, so now, um, so you've you've climbed Everest twice. You skied <laughs> to the South Pole by yourself. A couple of world records in there. For most people, and I know you've probably had this question a million times. The term like my Everest refers to the ultimate goal. You've got two Everest in the South Pole. What is your Everest now? 
and that's a good question and one I don't have a good answer for. Um, I think like with all these big trips, you need six, 12 months afterwards before you can even start thinking about suffering again or doing anything again. Mm. Um, so I guess I'm kind of still in that with Antarctica. I got back late January, but also like the world is a very different place to where it was last year when I was planning my trip last mm. year. I can't travel really anywhere at the moment. There's no way I'm going to be able to raise 40, 50 grand to, to do a trip at the moment. And actually, in a way, it kind of feels okay. And I think it feels okay because I feel quite content with Antarctica. And it's really nice actually to think that. Feel like you've that. accomplished something, do you? Yeah, yeah. And like finally, because like on Everest, I, I never felt that content with it. I was always like, okay, what's next? What do I want to do now? How can I see more, push myself more? But with Antarctica, it was so hard and so horrible at times. <clears throat> but I managed to do it and I got through it. I feel quite content with, with that achievement. But I don't know, there probably will be more stuff. But I don't feel like I have to go and do anything as crazy anymore, which is quite yeah. nice. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure, no. Thank you so much. If you like the sound of Molly, she is a professional motivational speaker. You can book her in by heading to speakerbuzz.co.uk or hit me up on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook by searching The Andy Rowe Show and I'll send you the link. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would be awesome as well if you could share it with your family and friends so we can keep making some quality content. Thanks again for listening.